we are, uh, we're in this series uh, in the book of Judges specifically and, and uh, called Don't Judge Me. And we're looking at not just what happened because you know, we can read the Bible and we can get caught up with the details, but what we're looking at is specifically what this shows us about ourselves. Because as we read through the book of Judges, it's, it's like the stories are so incredible and it feels like this is, this, this, how can this possibly relate at all? And, and then when you look at it and you realize these are people, these are people who are deeply flawed and have their issues, just like we are people who have issues. And, and man, we can see ourselves in these people. And, and so as we go through the book of Judges, we're looking at like what it shows us about us. And, and uh, the past few weeks have been great. Um, Pastor Justin a couple weeks ago, and then Pastor Brian last week. And uh, this is so funny. I, I, this is actually great. And I'm a little jealous of uh, Justin that he got to preach on Ehud because it was probably about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, um, I was talking with another uh, gentleman here who goes to our church and been coming for a long time. If you know who you are, I was chatting with you back there. And, and he, he literally said this. He's, he literally said, when are we going to talk about people who are left-handed? And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. There's no, the Holy Spirit put that on your heart to share with me because I, mean, I literally, I'm going, you are not gonna believe this. In just a few short weeks, we're gonna talk about how God loves even left-handed people. <laughs> and, and like, what a, what a story about Ehud. And like, like the detail is about him being left-handed. I go, man, you just sit tight because we're, it's coming. And, and like, what a, what a fascinating story in which like God uses Ehud and the detail that we get is that he's left-handed. That's like incredible. Um, and, and so we're jumping in today again to a guy that's, that's much more well-known and he's really well-known for one thing, though we're gonna look at his life as a judge. And, and, and this, this is a, today is part one of three parts because in the book of Judges, his story spans really over three chapters, almost kind of really into four. And, and so we're gonna look at this into three different sections but before we uh, do that and jump in today, I want to ask you a question, and that is this. What are you afraid of? Now, if we're honest, everyone is afraid of something. And, uh, and if we were to go through and like, you know, have all the few hundred of us ask, like, all right, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And, and we would get different answers. Some of them might be the same. For instance, some of you are afraid of snakes, right? Anyone? This is like your thing. Yeah, see? If you just made a noise when you saw that, that's you. You're in the category of snakes. Personally, I love snakes. Like I, man, I would, I would own a snake if, um, if, uh, if my family would be okay with it. I remember talking about getting a snake and like, man, I, I think, just think they're, they're awesome creatures. And, um, and as before, and hold on now, before you pass judgment, don't, first of all, don't judge me. Um, but, uh, and you think like, well, you know, the devil was a snake. Well, yes, but Jesus, Jesus also referred to himself as a serpent. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. Oh, see, snakes are good biblical creatures. And I love snakes. I was gonna get one. Um, and my wife said, if you get a snake for your office, I will never step foot in this church again. And I'm like, okay, that seems fair. I won't get a snake. Uh, because snakes are like, for some of us, the thing, right? Uh, and some of you, this, probably the same crowd, actually, you are also afraid of spiders, right? And this little creepy crawly thing, you're, you're going like, oh, even right now, you're like, I think one's crawling on me. It's crawling, get it off, get it off. 
because like for you, this, and here's again, how, here's how you know. So in our house, we have, we have like the spider killers and then the spider screamers. And the spider screamers let the spider killers know it's your job. You're like, you're on deck. You got to take care of this thing. And we have a few screamers in the house. And then we have some spider, you know, take care ofers. And, and like for, for some of you, you're going, is this still up there? Okay, good. Right. Because some of you, you're, it makes your skin crawl. We're all afraid of something. Now, it might not be that. It might not be those things. Like for spiders for me too is like, whatever. It well, doesn't, doesn't matter. They can crawl on me, no problem. Um, but, but then we have other fears. Like, I, I don't even know the amount of phobias that exist in, uh, like in our lives, but like, it just seems like they add new ones every year. But, but there are, there's countless areas that we're afraid of. And, and some of us aren't afraid of spiders or snakes, but you are, you are many of us. In fact, many people in the world, probably most of the people in the world are afraid of death. In fact, they will do anything and everything they can to avoid death, to avoid people who might get them sick, who might cause their death. We saw this during the COVID epidemic, that, um, the pandemic, that, that the fear of death literally shut down the world. The fear of dying or of possibly dying shut down everything. That our fear of death takes over and, and can control the decisions we make, even to the point where we get paralyzed with, with not even doing anything that might be at all risky. Some people have a hard time even leaving their house because the fear is so strong. Others of us, um, you don't have maybe a fear of death. Maybe you're like, hey, I, I mean, listen, I, we're, it's, all, it's gonna happen. It's coming for us all. Like all, every single one of us at some point is going to die. We don't like to think about it. And, and if we do, we're like, oh, no, no, not me, not me. That's not happening to me. And, and we, we try to deny it, but like, uh, it's, it's coming for you. Well, not for a while. Well, maybe, who knows? And, but maybe you don't have a fear of death, but listen, this next one, uh, I think a lot of us have. And that is this, the fear of public speaking. Because public speaking for you means public judgment. <laughs> Everyone is going to just be judging me and what I'm saying and how I'm saying it and how I'm dressed and, and, and like the, the, the words I use and the jokes and the tone and all that. And here's the deal. Ready? You were right. People do judge you on that because they judge me on that. And I, you, 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 you kindly let me know all of the issues you have with me. And, and, and I'm just kidding. But, but some of us have like this fear of public speaking is I'll do anything. I'll do anything but not that. If you ask me to get on stage ever, even just once, even just a picture of me on the screen, I will leave this church and I will never speak to you again. Like, like there's a legitimate fear of public speaking. And then others of us, you have a fear of other people's opinion of you. That your, the perception of you among other people is the thing that, that drives the decisions and the, the course of your life. That I want people to think of me like this. And it can be paralyzing when things don't go your way or, or, maybe, or maybe you can't present the image or the person that you want to be or that, or that someone might, might get a peek behind the fact that you're not perfect and they'll see that and it just, it just you, can't, you can't handle it. That the fear of people's opinion and their, their perspective and their, 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 how they view you can be paralyzing. Fear is paralyzing. It's like the, 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 the greatest fear in our life, if you felt this, to the point where like you can't move, you can barely breathe. 
And fear can hold us back from what God has for us. So today we're encountering a guy that, that, um, that allowed fear to consume him, yet God would use him. We're looking at the life of Gideon. And we will be now for the next few weeks as we get into kind of this three-part series in the life of Gideon because in the, in the book of Judges, he's one of the, the, main, the main guys, the main judges. This, this chapter we're in today, chapter six, is really broken into four scenes and we're gonna go through each one of them and see wh- like how they each play into the life of Gideon. And so the first is we're gonna see this. And this is, the, this, is the, this is the theme of the whole thing. The whole morning is this. And then we're gonna see this kind of pop up and show up at each, like during each scene. Here it is, ready? Before God can use you, he must prepare you. And, and you see that and you're like, yeah, that makes sense, but you don't like it. You don't want that to be true. You want to say, God, use me right now without anything on my end. I wanna be used by you, today even. Use me, and he can, and, and often does. But, but if, if we're honest, there's probably some work he's gotta do in you before you get to a point where you say, hey, use me, and use me in my life. What we see in the scripture is that anytime God calls someone, he prepares them. And the preparation is not fun. It's not what we would consider enjoyable. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a really good plan to move us forward in a way that we are in pure joy. Here's what we see, the life of Jesus. Jesus plans and preps for 30 years. And then he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness preparing for ministry. We see Moses preparing for 40 years before God is actually going to to use him to free his people. We even see the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was probably uh, one of the most brilliant minds that have ever lived. He was trained as a Pharisee. He was a a Jew of all Jews. He was like studied and, and, uh, and was at the top of his class, he says. And and then he decides, uh, like he has this experience where he, he has this, this Damascus Road experience and he, he gets blinded and he hears a voice and it's the voice of the Lord. And, and then he goes through this whole process and he gets a sight back and then he realizes this, this is Jesus whom I'm persecuting and he decides to become a follower of Jesus. And you know what he does? Our, our, what we think happened is like what we, like just in our minds is, oh, he must have then just gone and been like a on fire Christian and he just went church to church and planted churches. Paul didn't do that. He went away for two years by himself to prepare for ministry, to go study and be alone with the Lord and, and spend time preparing for what God was going to do in his life. Time after time in the scriptures, we see before God uses someone, he has to prepare them. And that's what we're gonna see this morning. And ready? What I'm gonna tell, what what I'm gonna like share with you this morning is is that that might be what he's doing with you today. That you might be in preparation mode, not in God use me mode. So let's jump in. The first thing, the first scene we see is that Israel again falls back into sin. We're back on this cycle, this sin cycle, or this merry-go-round we've been talking about where, where they experience uh, deliverance and then peace and everything is right. And then what do you know? Yet again, they fall right back into sin. And here's what this tells us. Here's what we learn about ourselves from that. Our sin is never satisfied. Your sin is never satisfied. Listen, you never get to a point where you say, that's it, 
I have completed my desire for sin no more. I don't want that sin any longer. There is no more temptation in my life. I'm full. (laughs) You never reach that point. The sin in our lives is never, it never reaches a point where it is now satisfied, where it's complete, where where we, we no longer want to do it anymore. Our sin is never satisfied, and Israel's sin wasn't satisfied, so they jump right back into sin. Starting in verse 6, or uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There it is. They experienced peace, and then they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, which throughout the book of Judges is synonymous with idolatry, that they turn yet again to other gods. And what we've looked at in the past number of weeks is that idolatry, the reason why idolatry is so bad and it's, it's like God takes it so serious is because idolatry is a break in relationship. Idolatry, if you remember, if you've been here, we've said idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is cheating on God with other gods. And he says, how could you? How could you leave me for anything or anyone else. And this is what they did. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of the Midianites was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and and other Eastern peoples invaded the country. And then it says this, verse four, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. All of their livestock they would kill. They came up with their livestock now, the Midianites, and their tents were like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or specifically their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished, uh, so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So we see that, that Israel is again back in it and struggling and back into the hands of their oppressors and God gives them over because they've left God and now are worshiping other gods. They've left him. He says, all right, if you don't want me, you can have what you want. And, and what you want is not really what you really, really want, but just there's consequences with leaving me and turning to other false gods. And and, and so they're experiencing this and, and they're realizing there's no end in sight here. But it takes them seven years, seven years of this before they really recognize and realize we probably should turn back. It's almost like we don't want to, but it's so bad now, fine, we'll go back. We'll go back to the Lord because they couldn't, they could not get away from the Midianites. They were impossible to count. There's so many of them and they were superior not just numerically, but they were superior in strength and militarily. They had better technology. You know what the technology was? We're told in this passage. The technology was camels. They had camels. Now, before you think of like, okay, that's not technology. No, no, no. It, it's a t- it is a big military advantage when you have camels. And the reason is because camels can go three to four days without drinking water which means you can travel over deserts, you can travel, you can travel. There's no place that Israel can be safe away from. Like there's no land, there's no location far enough where they can get that the Midianites can't reach them because they have superior technology in their camels. We can reach you wherever you go, wherever, whatever desert you cross, we'll, we'll find you. 
They can't get away. So they finally cry out to the Lord. But again, here we see the difference between what they do and true, honest, real, biblical repentance. What they do is just regret. We're sorry. They do what our kids do when they get caught. I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? No, but you're making me say it. (laughs) I'm sorry. They, they are sorry, but they're not repentant. 2 Corinthians 7, it says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Israel has worldly sorrow. They have regret. Not that they left the Lord yet again. They don't regret that. What they don't like are the consequences of it. This is overwhelming. Fine, Lord, please, can you just save us? Even though we caused all this, even though we left you, even though it's all our fault and these are the consequences for our sin and for leaving you, and we don't even really regret that. What we don't want is all of the bad stuff, all of this stuff that's happening. Can you just make that stop, please? And then God does something different. Something different than he does in the normal cycle because the normal cycle is, all right, he listens and then he raises up a judge and then the judge saves him. But he adds a step. And before he raises up a judge, he actually sends someone else. He sends a prophet. And he sends a prophet to preach to them. This prophet is going to preach. And so before God saves them, he's gonna give them a sermon. These are why preachers are the most important people in the history of the world. You know that? I just made that up. But, but God uses them. And like, here we go. We have a prophet now. God is going to use specifically a prophet to preach a sermon. And this sermon has two points. It's a short sermon. And it only has two things, two points that God wants them to know. We're going to read this. And then you tell me if you kind of find where, like, what these points are. Here it is, verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian... He sent them, not a judge, but he sent them a prophet who said, now here it is. Here's the sermon that he's got. This is the prophet's only role is to preach this sermon. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God, Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. But you didn't do it. Two points, ready? Here's what God did, and then here's what you did. Here's what God does. He takes care of us, and he saves us, and he he does everything he can to to be in relationship with us, and then here's what we do. We say, I can do it better on my own. I can go my own way. Thank you very much. Point one, God does all of this. Point two, we don't care. We don't listen. We still want to do things our way. That was what was preached to Israel. That was what could be preached to us this morning. God gives them another rebuke, another warning and, and at this moment, at this moment, God doesn't have to save them. God could say, listen, we were supposed to be in relationship. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. So why, why should I come and save you? I am no longer obligated to because you're not living out your end of this relationship. But he doesn't do that. He reminds them that they've left him yet again. And yet 
he still, in his grace and his goodness, says, but still, I'm going to save you. Even though you don't deserve it, even though you don't even really want to know me, I'm still going to save you. I'm still, because you're my people, and even though you forsake me, I will never forsake you. I'm not leaving you, no matter what. So we see, scene one, we have this, this, it sets the scene that Israel yet again falls into sin and God is yet again there to be their savior. Scene two, now we see Gideon is reluctant to receive God's call. Now he's gonna uh, have an interaction with Gideon specifically and, 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 and begin this process of kind of raising him up to be a judge. And here's what we're gonna see. You and I, Gideon is reluctant to receive God's call. We are good at, just like Gideon, we're good at making excuses. We are really good at making, listen, I know a lot of you, you're good at excuses. You are really good at making excuses. Just ask like your family, just ask those closest to you. We are really good at making excuses as to why we couldn't do that thing or why it didn't work or why we messed up or why we forgot or why we did this wrong thing or why. We're really good at the reasons why. But when someone else does it, how could they? What we expect in other people is perfection. Listen, I, I don't know why you did this. You're, you're, you're the most terrible person I've ever met. Okay. Uh, I mean, we don't say it like that, but we can think like, I can't believe, I can't believe that you are not perfect. I can't believe that you would mess up. Yet when it's our turn, we say, hey, can you please forgive me for messing up? I'm not perfect. We're really good at making excuses for ourselves, yet holding other people to a, a, a standard that we don't even hold to ourselves. And what we see is that Gideon is really good at making excuses. Here's what we see in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak uh, in Ophrah that belonged to Joash. So the angel of the Lord shows up. Now, this is a very, very, like, very specific person, a very specific being that we're gonna look at here in a second. And, and just notice the language and the shift in language about this particular being. So he, he goes to sit down in this oak tree that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So um, here's uh, what uh, kind of a picture of threshing wheat. And, and what you're doing is trying to separate the wheat from the chaff to get the grain. And so you use a little bit of, you know, you want some, some wind moving, some air. And so like, like it's based on weight. So you throw it up and you separate and whatever. All right. You do this above ground because you need some wind and you, there's no reason to do it anywhere else. But because Gideon is afraid of the Midianites and doesn't want them to take it because that's what they do. Anytime they come around, they just want to steal and all of your grain and kill your livestock. He does it in a wine press. Here's a wine press. A wine press is a kind of a, a hole that's dug and then they fill it with, uh, with some rock or stone. Um, and then they would use, uh, they would fill it with grapes and then press it down and that this then would create the, the juice and like the grape juice that would then begin the process of making wine. So he is doing this top thing in this hole so that he's kind of hidden. It's not ideal, but that's what he's doing because he's afraid of the Midianites. So here's where we find him. In a wine press, threshing wheat. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon is no mighty warrior. In fact, he knows that. And he knows that because he doesn't even reference it. He doesn't even, he almost just kind of like laughs it off and just moves right on. He doesn't even give it any, 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 uh, any credence of any possibility that this, could, that this might be true. 
Here's our response. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13, Gideon, here's his reply. Uh, Pardon me, my Lord. (laughs) Here's Here's what he says, ready? Excuse me? Excuse me, the Lord? And he says this, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian? So this angel of the Lord shows up and he says, hey, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he's like, excuse me, God is with us? Well, where's he at? You can almost just feel this kind of pent up like frustration and bitterness and and struggle inside of him going, oh, really? You're gonna talk about the Lord? You're gonna talk about the Lord right now? He brings up the problem, what's often referred to as the problem of evil. That if God is good and he's with us, then why does all this bad stuff happen? It's a question that people ask today. It's a, it's a good question. It's a fair question. And it has a really good answer. And he's asking the same thing. All right, if the Lord is with us, and where is he? Where is he? And then it says this, verse 14. This is the angel of the Lord, remember? It says this, the Lord turned to him and said, okay, you see the change in language? This angel of the Lord shows up, and now we're told that this isn't the angel of the Lord. This is the Lord. Here's what, we're, what we look at. When we, anytime you see an angel, the angel of the Lord show up in Scripture in the Old Testament, theologians and scholars mostly all agree, and, and I, I think you should too for, for good reason, that this is not just an angel. This is a particular person. And this person is often referred to not just as an angel, but also the Lord. That this, how can this be, right? That God is both like talking about God and yet is the Lord. Because this, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is, ready? This is God the Son. This is an experience and an encounter with the pre, what's called the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus showing up. And he's having a conversation with Gideon. He obviously doesn't know his name. He doesn't know anything about this person or what he's gonna do. He doesn't know any of that. But this, this, this angel of the Lord shows up, but yet is also the Lord himself. The angel is the Lord. And he shows up as a person. And, and the reason Gideon doesn't recognize him, ready for this? Are you ready? Are you sitting down? I'm looking around. Most of you are sitting down. Okay, ready? He shows up in the appearance of a man. He looks just like a guy. He's just a guy who came and sit under a tree and he says, hey, Lord's with you, mighty warrior. And he's like, excuse me, yeah, right. And then the same angel says, the Lord turned to him and said, this is now the angel speaking who is also the Lord speaking, who is, who, who is God himself. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? This isn't an angel speaking on behalf of the Lord. This is God himself speaking. And, and his response, Gideon's response, pardon me, Lord, same thing. Uh, excuse me? What are you talking about? Excuse me? Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? Here come the excuses. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. That my family is a part of the weakest of all the tribes. And even within my family, I'm the least of all of the, all of the brothers that I have. Like I'm the, I'm the least of the least of the least. And I'm the one you're supposed to use. I think you've got the wrong guy here, sir. And then it says again, the Lord answered. God himself now is speaking. This angel who is God, who is the Lord, the Lord answered, 
I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. God told Gideon and says the most important thing that Gideon needs to hear. And it isn't this, I have a plan. It isn't God saying, here's what I want you to do. It isn't God saying, let's think through a strategy, a five-year plan of how we're gonna overcome the Midianites and I'm gonna help you on the process to start this new thing that I'm calling you to. He doesn't do any of that, though none of that's necessarily bad. Like if you're gonna go start a business, or you're gonna go into ministry, or you're gonna start some sort of like new, new, new program or new company or new ministry experience, like, all right, it's good to put together a plan, but that's not what, that's not what God tells him. That's not what he needed to hear. Here's what he says. Ready? I'll be with you. Here's what you need to know. More than a plan, more than what's coming next, more than like all of the stuff you have to do, here's what I want you to know. Ready? I will be with you. I'll be with you. What more do you need? Am I not sending you? Is it not enough that I am sending you? But listen, I, the Lord, will be with you. And I don't know if you know this, he brings a lot of authority to the game. Like he brings, like his resume is pretty good. When he says, I'm with you, that's all, that's all you need. I'll be with you. But listen, I'm gonna be with you. So he, he, we see this, verse 17. The Lord tells him, I'm gonna be with you and this is what you're gonna do. This is what's gonna happen. Verse 17, Gideon replied, all right, now he starts to recognize maybe this isn't just a guy sitting under an oak tree, which is a funny thought. Like, like God himself comes, God, the, God the, the son comes and just is like hanging out under a tree and is like, hey, Gideon, what's up, bud? I'm like, hey, mighty warrior. And he's like, excuse me? Like, that's just a funny scene to think about. And then it says this, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Now Gideon is showing up and going, all right, prove it. If it really, okay. If this really is you, prove it. I need some kind of sign. And then he says, please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get an offering and I'm gonna bring it back and I'm gonna set it before you. And if you really are who you say you are, you, then you'll receive this offering. And here's what's like, again, this is like funny to think about. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. He's like, all right, deal. And Gideon leaves, he leaves God himself, and, and he's just like, I'm sure he's just chilling under the oak tree like, all right, I guess we're waiting now, huh? How did this happen? Right, this is, again, this is the second person of the Trinity, this is Jesus before he becomes like born and, and goes through the experience, before he has the name Jesus, and he's probably going like, all right, Gideon, Father, are we sure this is the right guy? This is the right guy. He's... He's taking a while. He's just waiting, literally waiting there under a tree for him to come back. So it continues. Gideon went inside. He prepared a young goat from an ephah of flour, which is a measurement. It's like between 30 and 36 pounds of flour. So it's a lot of flour. And he uses it to make bread without yeast. Putting the meat in the basket and, uh, and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. So he comes back finally, and he's still under the oak tree, probably just sitting down, just waiting, like, all right, man, like, here we go. Let's get this thing going. And, and he brings this offering back to him. And then it says this, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place it on this rock, and pour out the broth. And so Gideon did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. So he has a staff, right? Of course he has a staff, right? It's Jesus. And he, and he touches this and it says, fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So this this angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, shows up and it receives the offering and then disappears and, he's, and then he realizes that was him. Now, listen, that, if you and I had, this, had that experience, it would be incredible and amazing. I got to experience that. He just, he's there and this whole thing, and then, like, and then he was just gone. We would be telling the story, I'd be telling the story to every single one of you. Like, there would, I would, every ear I get, I would be telling this story to Gideon experiences this. Now, remember that, because as we go on, he continues to to experience doubt, but he experienced the Lord face to face. And then verse 23, but the Lord said to him, now the the angel's gone, but the Lord like speaks probably, probably now God the Father audibly from heaven. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. And you know why he told him that? Because Gideon thought, I'm gonna die. (laughs) If this is true, then I am afraid and I'm supposed to now be be the guy to go against the Midianites. There's no way I survive this. There's no way that I live. So God himself grants him peace and says, don't be afraid, you are not gonna die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. He literally says, all right, this is what I need. This is who you said you are. You you grant me peace. You're offering peace. The Lord is peace peace. Gideon had an encounter with God himself, and this encounter changes everything. And this is all part of his preparation because God's going to use him. But before God uses them, he has to prepare him. Now we encounter, when we encounter God's presence, our fear diminishes. And we have these moments where it's like, I'm not afraid. Listen, whatever fears I have about moving forward, God, like knowing that God is with me, over, should be enough to help me overcome that. In the New Testament, it's said this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? In, this, in the same way, he's like, don't, don't you know? Don't you know? I will be with you. I'll be with you. Okay, now we get into scene three. Scene two, he interacts and has this experience. Now, scene three, what we see now is God's gonna call Gideon to do something before he kind of, raises him up as the judge. Before God defeats the enemies around Israel, he must defeat the enemies within Israel. This is important because this is for you as well. Here's what we see. Truly worshiping God requires dealing with two altars. Not just the one that we set up to say, I'm now going to worship you, Lord, but there's another altar that he has to deal with. And there's altars that we have to deal with. It isn't enough to say, I'm going to choose to worship you. The second thing that he calls Gideon to and that he calls us to is he says, now you've got to get rid of the other altars. It's not enough that you just add me to your life. I need to become your life. And all of the things you used to worship that you used to live for that were the things that I want to do this and this is how I'm, how I make, what makes me happy and this is how I want to live, you have to remove that now. You got to get rid of that. You got to get rid of all these other idols in your life because they're taking the place that's reserved for me. Gideon wants to worship God, but but now he tells them to tear down the altar of Baal and Asherah. 
He tells them specifically, I want you to do this now. You gotta go back to your home. You gotta tear these altars down. There's a catch here. There's a twist. Of course, there's always a twist. Who do you think's in charge of the altar? His dad. Gideon's dad is the one who's in charge of the altar to Baal. Here's the deal, ready? It's the family business. This is what they do. This is who they are. This is what dad does. And he, and he tells Gideon, here's what I need you to do. Ready? I need you to go, and I need, I need you to tear down your dad's business. Can you do that for me? Okay. That's a big ask. I need you to tear down this altar. It also happens to be your dad's. In verse 25, it says this, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. I want you to do this. This is the Lord speaking to him. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants. So apparently they have resources. As much as he is the lowest of his family, he still has, they're still a a pretty well-off family. Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid, not now of the Midianites, but of his family and of the townspeople, of the other Israelites, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Now in the morning when the people of the town woke up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on this newly built altar. So God told him, take these bulls, I want you to tear this down and then I want you to provide a sacrifice because I am now the one who you need to worship in place of and instead of Baal. So he does it at night. They wake up in the morning and they see this. They ask each other, who did this? Who did this? To our altar. When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Here's what we learned from that. Ready? Even the 10 closest people in your life you trust are untrustworthy. How dare you? You can't tell a secret to anyone. No, we don't know that's true. But this is what happens, right? For him, only 10 other people know it. And somehow, maybe by threat, we don't know, they, one of them, one of them spills the beans and one of them is a rat. And rats them out. Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The town, and then here's what you see. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. This is how we know that Israel didn't truly return to the Lord, that this was just a, hey, we're sorry, please stop the consequences because they still didn't want to leave the worship of their false gods. They didn't want to turn to, to the Lord. They just, wanted, they just wanted the consequences of their sin to stop. But they don't want to leave him. They don't want to change their relationship with the Lord. So it continues. They want to kill him. Joash, we need your son. And then Joash steps in as dads often do, right? Because dads always save the day. Always, right? As soon as mom tells them what they need to do, Dad, step in and save the day. Says this, but Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you gonna plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him, the God? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. Here's what he's saying. Anyone who fights on behalf of Baal and kills my son will be put to death tomorrow. I'll kill him. Here's what he's saying. Ready? You wanna come and kill you want to come kill my son? He says, over my dead body. Listen, if you're going to do that, you're going to, you're going to lose your life if you try to take my sons. 
All right. If, and he says this, if Baal really is a God, now remember, this is the guy who built the altar, who's in charge of it. If he really is a God, then he can defend himself when someone breaks down his own altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. So he gets a new name, and his new name is, man, this guy's got some guts. He took down Baal's altar, and so the, the new name is, hey, let Baal deal with him. It's like, hey, yep, let God deal with him. That guy, he, he stepped over the line. Like, he crossed the line. All right, we won't touch you, but man, we don't want to be you. We do not want to be you when Baal wakes up to see his altar crushed. So we see that, that Gideon, one of Gideon's job is to deal with this, this other altar. So God calls him to deal with these two altars that, that before he helps save Israel, he's got to first deal with this, this internal struggle. Here's the last scene. Gideon will still, even in the midst of all of this, he still doubts God's call. And this is what is, he's well known for. This is what, when you think of Gideon, this is what you think of. We think of Gideon and the fleece. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, so now he has the Holy Spirit in him, and he raises up an army to defeat Israel's enemy. He's be, he starts to become now this judge, and, and people from all over Israel now are coming. The Israelites are coming to, the, to be a part of this resistance, to be a part of this army. God is clearly at work in his life. But that's not enough. Verse 36, it says this, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, all right, if, you're, if this is really what your plan is, this, I know you said it. I know I saw it happen. I saw you come. I saw you take up the, the offering and then you vanish. And I, I, I okay, you, and you wanted me to do all this? All right, fine, you did it. If you want me to do this, then look, I just got one little test. I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all around it is, the ground is dry, then I will know that, that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Listen, just do this one thing. Just prove it one time, all right? Seems fair. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So he says, all right, Lord, just one quick test. Just one quick, one quick proof. And then the next thing we know, Gideon says, all right, I've seen enough. I'm your guy. Now I have courage and I'm strong and I am full of faith. No, that's not what happens. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, please. I have one more request. He's like, just one more thing. I'm so sorry. And he knows, he knows he's like towing the line. He knows that he's stepping on toes. Listen, just, just please don't be angry with me. One more thing. Let me just make one more request. Allow one more test with the fleece. Just one more, just one more. I know you just did that and that was miraculous and that's pretty cool. Can you do it one more time? But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. Just, just, just flip it, Lord. Just today's opposite day. Just make it the other way around now. Just one more time. Just, just, just to prove it. And then it says this. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So we see he does that. And the chapter ends because, again, it's a, it's a dot, 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 right? It's a, it's a to be continued. There's still more coming in the story. And so God actually listens to it and is like, all right, fine. To help you because of your doubt, because, uh, because of your fear of, what, of the unknown, I'll do it. Now, there's a few things here. First, we know this, right? That before God can use you, he must prepare you. And so he is preparing Gideon for this role. Now, 
you and I, I would suggest that this is not a good model to follow. That if you really want to know the Lord's will for your life, it isn't by putting him to the test twice. <laughs> but we do this. And, and the, the reason we do this is because we, we think, like, like forgetting, we have to re- realize he didn't have the Bible. He didn't have what you and I have. He, he certainly didn't have, like, Jesus and, and, and like, like, any of these words written down to say, this is the word of the Lord. All he had was this encounter with the angel of the Lord, and now God's speaking to him, and he's like, all right, I just need to know. So for him, he's going, I don't have all the proof and the evidence that I, that I need yet. And, and you and I, we do. We really do. What does God want? What does God say? He wrote it down for us. He doesn't have that, but we do. We also have the Holy Spirit in us now, like directing us to know the God's will. And so for you and I, like what, instead of what we want to do is this. We want to just look at that and say like, okay, but that's a lot of work to read this. Like that takes some discernment and some time and effort. I just instead just, God, show me a sign. So when I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for a long time, for uh, over a decade, is a while ago now. And, and I remember one, one particular instance where I had um, uh, two students. So they were high school students. They're minors, right? And, and they, you know, as many high schoolers do, they were in love. Whatever love is in high school, right? So they, they, want, they, they were very interested in each other and wanted to date. And, uh, and, um, and I always told my uh, high schoolers, Hey, listen, you need to know the Lord's will for your life. And if you want to know what it is, just come ask me. And, and so they came and asked me, what's the Lord's will for our life? And they legitimately were like, do you think God wants us to start dating? And I'm like, well, all right. I got, I have some specific advice that I have for high school. I have actually five pieces of advice that I give to high schoolers that, that want to date. And it's, I think it's brilliant and it's foolproof and it's really, really good, though they hate it. Um, and maybe one day I'll give you that advice. Uh, but I, I'm like, all right, I have some advice. And, and I remember the, the girl, she goes, no, no, but listen, but listen, listen. I told the Lord that if I get this basketball and make a half court shot, then that means he wants me to date, that the Lord wants me to date him. And I'm going, oh, well, tell me more about this super spiritual story and experience, like, like this faithful, like honoring of the Lord, what the Lord wants. Yes, the basketball. I forgot about the basketball test that the Lord gave us in, you know, in second made up book of the Bible. And, and so she's like, and you know, you know, Brandon, you won't believe it. One shot and I made it. I made it. Isn't that proof? Isn't that proof? And I said, you are a terrible Christian. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But I said, I don't know. I don't know if I would judge the Lord's will on someone's basketball athleticism, right? Good or not. And, and, but that was it. What she wanted to know was, I think God wants us to because I told him, if you do this. Now, how many times have we said, Lord, if you get me out of this jam, if you fix this thing, I'll serve you. If you do this for me, then I'll know you're, I'll talk to people about you. If you can just do this as though God is just working to fulfill all of our tests. Like he's just trying to prove himself with our kind of silly little gamesmanship. Gideon does this. You and I, you and I, we have so much more at our disposable, that, uh, disposal than, than what Gideon had. We have God's word. We have God's spirit in us. We have we have Jesus himself who came and showed us what to do. So 
Before God can use you, he must prepare you. Now, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you one final question. Ready? What might God be preparing you for? Before God uses you, he has to prepare you. What if right now there's a season in your life and, and it's, it's, this, it's the preparation season before the next season? What if God has something for you next in your life? Maybe it's soon, maybe it's still a ways off. And, and before he gets to a point where he can really truly use you and you're like, I'm all in, he has to prepare you for something. He has to prepare you for what's next. And what if what you're going through, it may be difficult right now, what if what you're going through is to prepare you for that next thing. We see that throughout scripture, that before God uses someone, he has to prepare them. And maybe, just maybe, he's preparing you for your next thing. Before God can use you, he must prepare you. Would you do this? Would you stand with me as we get ready to worship the Lord together? And, and, and as you stand, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna ask God, to prepare us. So Lord, we thank you for your word. And I imagine that every one of us here, if we were asked, do you want to be used by God? All of us would put our hand up and say, yeah, I want to be used by God. All right. If that's you, then maybe God needs to spend some time preparing you for whatever that thing is next. Lord, help us. Help us to seek more of you and to, to be prepared by you and for you and because of you. Whatever that looks like, we want to be your people. We want to be faithful to you, Jesus. So use us how you want. And in the meantime, prepare us for whatever it is you have for us next. Pray this in Jesus' name.